Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. So welcome everyone to today's Global Council podcast. It's the quote in this podcast title, nothing and no one is off the table. It's taken from a tweet by the UK Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, last month. She was announcing the UK's decision to sanction two oligarchs. Truss was claiming that nothing is off limits in terms of sanctioning individuals to put pressure on Putin and ultimately his policy on Ukraine. Truss was talking specifically about Russia, but today we want to ask how far what she said is true both there and more broadly. Has Russia's invasion of Ukraine fundamentally changed the UK's willingness to go after, to put it crudely, the bad guys and their money in future? This would mean a pretty big increase compared to the pre-war situation in political will to sanction perpetrators of human rights and corruption abuses abroad. But it would also mean further change to the UK's economic crime framework at home for tackling the dirty money of oligarchs and others. And both of these are things that a wide range of corporates and investors will need to be aware of. So to explore all of this with us today, I'm joined by Charlie Ludon, an international legal advisor at Redress, a human rights law NGO we do some pro bono work with as part of our social impact program. We're also joined by Rebecca Park, Senior Practice Director for Financial Services at GC and previously of UK Finance. So I think it probably makes sense for our audience for us to start with why sanctioning individuals and targeting their money matters in the first place. So Charlie, from the perspective of getting justice for survivors of torture and other human rights and corruption abuses, why are these sorts of targeted sanctions so important? To, to put it simply, to, to stop human rights abuses and corruption, you need to change the behaviour of the perpetrators. And one really effective way to do that is to impose a financial cost on them by freezing their assets or to make their lifestyle harder by stopping them from travelling to places they want to go to, like the UK, the US and Europe. To give you an example, in Bangladesh, there's a paramilitary force called the Rapid Action Battalion. And until recently, they were carrying out hundreds of extrajudicial killings a year. The United States recently sanctioned the Rapid Action Battalion and some of their senior officials. And this really rattled the government in Bangladesh. The Bangladeshi elites send their kids to Western universities. They have Western bank accounts and they retire to properties in the US, the UK and Canada. And after the US sanctions, for the first time, the main topic on the national TV talk shows in Bangladesh was the actions of the Rapid Action Battalion. And more importantly, overnight, we saw extrajudicial killings by the battalion fall to zero. So that just gives you one example of, of the impact that these sanctions can have on the perpetrators of human rights abuses and corruption. They are a really powerful tool to bring about behavioral change. So essentially, I guess they're, in theory, they're designed to either deter bad behavior or change it once it's started, or at the very least, if that fails, to, um, to make a point by punishing it internationally. Um, and I guess there's also reason to think that this is particularly relevant to the Russia situation. Um, it's been called out for a number of years. There was a, a report by the Foreign Affairs Committee in 2018 called Russian Gold that basically made the point that money laundering and sanctioning oligarchs are fundamentally foreign policy issues, not just financial crime. You can't really have a coherent strategy to tackle Russian influence abroad if you're going to welcome their money at home. I think just in addition to the foreign policy angle, I don't know how far you agree, Charlie, but I guess there's something quite unique about targeting individuals in terms of getting justice for survivors of various types of abuses, because it really kind of goes after the people most responsible in quite a unique and clear way 
There is. And, and often in these contexts, like Bangladesh or Sudan, where we've done a lot of work at redress, there are no other options to hold these individuals accountable. And for victims, you know, the, the people who've suffered torture, sexual violence, they've essentially been told by the governments in question for decades that these violations never even happened. And so the fact of the US, the UK, the EU standing up and saying, no, this, this did take place and we are going to call out the perpetrators does have an impact on the perpetrator's behavior, but it also has a real impact for victims in the absence of any other forms of accountability. Okay, so this is a the pretty important tool that the UK and other countries have at their disposal. It'd be great choice to kind of get your view, your pretty unique perspective from helping submit applications uh, for the UK to target particular individuals on just how the system worked in practice before the Ukraine crisis. Which bits of it do you think worked and which didn't? So before Ukraine, we did see some strong action from the UK. We saw them sanctioning Saudi individuals for the Khashoggi killing and working together with the US, the EU and Canada to sanction Chinese officials for the genocide in Xinjiang. And that is really strong action that they suffered some diplomatic blowback for. Uh, but it was the UK standing up for its values abroad. And I think it was really important both as a signal to the governments in question, but also to the to the victims and civil society involved. But there, there were prior to Ukraine, various improvements that we thought the UK government needed to make to its use of these sanctions. And I'll talk about three main ones. So the first was on coordination. The UK needed to be more coordinated with its allies because when you impose these sanctions, if you impose them together with other jurisdictions, they're way more impactful. For a start, it makes it harder for perpetrators because they can't just move their assets from one jurisdiction to another. And also it lessens the diplomatic blowback because you're acting as a unified force with a number of your allies. But despite this, prior to Ukraine, we'd seen that the UK had sanctioned less than 20% of the individuals and the entities that the US had sanctioned under its equivalent human rights and anti-corruption sanctions regimes. The second point that we saw for improvement was on resourcing. The US has an annual budget of $5.5 million for its targeted sanctions program. The UK's prior to Ukraine was just a fraction of that. Uh, they wouldn't disclose the full figure, but we know from the size of the team and the amount of sanctions that they are producing that it's it was really a, a small proportion of the US's resourcing budget. And then the final point is that because sanctions are a tool that are exercised at the discretion of the executive, they're not imposed by a court, they are at the whim of politics and diplomacy. And so in the UK, we saw a really strong start under Dominic Raab as foreign secretary, where he imposed sanctions on around 100 individuals for human rights abuses and corruption. But once this trust took over as foreign secretary, that fell basically to zero. And I think we've seen a change in trust's attitude to sanctions post the Ukraine crisis. But I think that demonstrates the extent to which, to date, sanctions do suffer from being a tool of executive discretion. And one point that we've been pushing for is greater parliamentary oversight to ensure that the government is using sanctions in a consistent way. So they're a pretty powerful toolkit, but perhaps we're being held back by problems of political will, capacity and coordination. Um, Becca, on that note, should we turn to the UK economic crime context? Um, so the UK's approach to dirty money at home, London's long had the dubious honour of being an international destination of choice, some would say, for dirty money. Um, and this has obviously developed over a long time, fairly unchecked, and the tools that were developed have been criticised by some as being fairly toothless for a while. 
Can you give us any insight into how far this is true? And if so, why the situation has come about? Thanks, Felix. I think broadening this out to, to think about the economic crime elements and, and the broader money laundering elements is, is a critical part of kind of understanding the risk to the UK, um, the risk to the global economy, but also the opportunities and, and tools available to do more. Because when it comes to illicit finance, the UK is both held up very often as being, you know, a, um, a core centre of where these illicit funds are allowed to flow. And much has been written and said about, you know, London being a kind of a laundromat for, for Russian money. But at the same time, if you look at the work of the Financial Action Task Force, which is the global multilateral body that leads on sort of economic crime standards, the UK is also held up as a great example of a country that has implemented very effective anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing controls. So all the major economies are reviewed by FATF um, on a regular basis to consider what their AML controls and, and regime is. And the UK's review in 2018 was held. And actually, it was excellent. It's probably one of the best reviews of a, of a developed nation there exists. I mean, if this had been America being reviewed by FATF, the Americans would have been waving this review globally, pointing to their global excellence and leadership in addressing illicit finance. And I think what I would say in this space is both concerns and both statements can be true, because one of the reasons London has put so much focus on dealing with anti-money laundering and illicit finance is because it is a leading global financial services centre. And because it's a leading global financial services centre, the pool of funds coming through the UK is so great that even if you're being quite effective at trying to address illicit finance, the pool of illicit finance will also be great. And I think this is one of the challenges and issues that has really sort of hampered the UK in this space. But also because of the scale of the UK's professional services, financial services and consultancy services, you have a lot of expertise here in the very structuring and advisory work that can be exploited and utilised by criminals. And so actually, it does open up the UK to, to much higher risks and much higher levels of risk, despite attempts to kind of try and address the economic crime agenda. But I think the second thing I'd want to note here is a lot has been done and the UK is, is held up as highly effective. But also, this agenda is still hampered by a lack of policy clarity and by a lack of um, resource in this space. And we've seen the UK, even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, try and address this. We've had in the UK since 2019 an economic crime plan that was an attempt by the government, law enforcement and the private sector to come together and try and set out a three year strategy to address illicit finance and prevent illicit finance. And it made a lot of good progress. We saw it implement really important measures around public-private partnerships, better intelligence and information sharing, better assessments of the threat and understanding. But that doesn't mean it was a sort of panacea solution to everything. A lot of the challenges we see in this space still stand. And one of them is it's often very difficult to see the harm in economic crime. Um, when it comes to crime um, statistics and law enforcement allocation, it's so often driven by crime data and ONS kind of crime surveys. And, and that's what drives politicians. But it's very hard to identify the tangible harm of economic crime because you have to track the illicit funds flows right through from the the moment of money laundering through to the harm that it's then being used for very often human trafficking or you know association with counter-terrorist financing or kind of drugs and i think as the intelligence and information that law enforcement has been able to gather has become stronger and better we can start to draw those connections and as those connections are drawn you start to get more political appetite and more political in, um, interest in trying to address these issues so i think we've seen some good progress um 
But certainly there is a lot more to do and there are a lot more challenges that still remain unaddressed, particularly around how you gather and share information, how you build the trust networks to enable that sharing of information. Because as the economy becomes increasingly digital and with that digitization, communications become increasingly encrypted. Access to financial information becomes a critical part of the intelligence program and a critical part of trying to find and identify these risks. And I think that's becoming more apparent to law enforcement and governments. It's becoming more apparent to the private sector. And that's probably where we're going to see sort of a lot more focus in terms of how we tackle, fight and address this. I think it's also fair to say that there are elements of this regime where the government in the UK and the governments globally have been slow to act. There are things that are politically difficult to deliver around disclosure and transparency requirements that we have seen on the list, on the to-do list for the UK government now for three to four years. And only since the Russian invasion of Ukraine have we seen the government come forward with detailed proposals on verifiable beneficial ownership registers and initiatives like that. And I think that's where we saw that a very crisp kind of response by the government to actually now catch up and try and implement some of these measures. But despite that slowness, it's worth noting these are still areas where the UK is often ahead of many other countries. And you know, the debate on beneficial ownership disclosure is far more advanced in the UK than it is across the US, for example. Thanks, Becca, for providing quite a bit of nuance to my slightly crude characterization of the city there. So that, that point about political appetite and the fact that victims are often so far away and the process is so opaque to draw out being kind of an obstacle to political appetite for tackling it, but one that hopefully is changing with more with more information and transparency, I think is an important one. Also picking up on that political will point, uh, in a fairly kind of amazing coincidence of timing, uh, a book came out from an author and financial journalist, Oliver Bullough, in March 2022 called Butler to the World, basically making the case that he thinks Britain has fairly actively pursued a model of welcoming money regardless of where it comes from for a long time. And one of the things he picks up on there is, one, the role of overseas territories. If you take action at home, what happens? What happens abroad? How effective can you be without that? But then also uh, he sees a fairly cynical lack of political will to come down on things that might bring money more more broadly into the UK. How far do you think that's a real thing? Or do you think he's overly cynical there? So I, I definitely know people who work in, um, around the kind of law enforcement industry or in sort of private security now who would sort of say governments only model GDP and economic crime actually helps increase your GDP figures. And I think, you know, there is probably something to be interrogated in that space in terms of how the threat is understood and compared to kind of broader economic concerns. But I don't think you can say the UK has been sort of welcoming or a kind of turning a blind eye to illicit finance. I think it has struggled to tackle it effectively at times. I think there is more that it could have done. But there has definitely been a concerted effort to make, and I believe the phrasing often used by government is to make the UK a hostile place for illicit finance and economic crime. And there has definitely been a huge amount of work done through the creation of, you know, the National Crime Agency and the new National Economic Crime Command Centre to try and address these issues. But I think so often it is hard to match that commitment with the broader political debate in this space. So at its most crude level, um, if you're a politician talking about where to put law enforcement resource, the public want to see police on their streets. They want to see the physical presence of law enforcement you aren't going to win many votes by saying actually your, exist your existing police resource is going to be sat behind a computer and is going to be scouring the dark web and is going to be working through really detailed data and intelligence packets to try and identify the sources of this funding and the sources of this crime. And that's what it's going to take to actually address this. We need the right legal framework, the right regulatory framework, so that it is difficult to operate these illicit funds flows through the UK. 
and we need the right beneficial ownership structure so that these funds can be identified and tracked. But we also need the law enforcement capability and the investment in law enforcement to then follow up on that information. And I think, you know, one of the things FATF called out in the UK review was the additional resource that the UK's financial intelligence units, FIUs, require in order to be able to tackle this more effectively. And we have a new economic crime plan that is due at the end of this year, um, in addition to an economic crime bill that's going to go through Parliament in this term as well. And I do think both of those things are going to be hampered if there isn't a more honest and a broader and open conversation about the level of resource that is going to be required to invest in this. Because we have a new economic crime levy in the UK that's being levied on parts of the, the regulated money laundering, um, anti-money laundering sector, which will help fund some of this. But actually, I would say the funding gap is much greater. And unless we have a conversation about where those funds are going to come from and how we change the nature of um, investment in law enforcement to tackle this, we are always going to be fighting a criminal that acts like a business. You know, those people behind economic crime and illicit funds flows operate like a business and they are looking for their next commercial opportunity to maximise their income and innovating to maximise their income. And unless we can bolster that with the same level of investment on the public sector and the law enforcement side, it's going to be an ever kind of growing battle and never growing challenge. Thanks, Becca. Um, both that's, those are really helpful outlines, the kind of problems faced in, in both of these different areas before the crisis. If we can now kind of fast forward to the Russian invasion on February 24th of Ukraine, and let's first look at how this might have changed the UK's approach to sanctioning individuals. So we haven't seen a rise in Magnitsky sanctions specifically, but we have seen well over a thousand individuals designated under the Russian sanctions regime, as well as a wide range of other actions, um, other types of sanctions, um, and also other, other changes to support the sanctioning of individuals. There might be better coordination with allies, so we saw the launch of a transatlantic task force on sanctions, and also legislative changes that Becker alluded to that were rushed through to make it easier and quicker to designate certain people. More broadly, the UK has also played a clear leadership role throughout the crisis. Um, so Charlie, if I can just get your view on how successful and significant you think this use of individual sanctions in the last few months has been, or do you think there are areas the UK could have done better, gone further or acted more quickly? To put it bluntly, the, the UK's initial response to the Ukraine crisis and sanctions was really poor. We were crunching the numbers and looking at the number of individuals and entities that the UK was designating. And in the first couple of weeks, they fell way behind the US and the EU. And I think the comparison with the EU is particularly striking because prior to Brexit, the EU sanctions regime was the UK sanctions regime. And it's really striking that the impact of Brexit was to make the UK less effective in being able to sanction individuals than it was previously than EU is. And you know, that speed of sanctioning is important. It gives sanctioned individuals time to move their assets outside of the jurisdiction before they get caught by freezes. And I think that initial slow, slowness demonstrated a lot of the failings that we'd been advocating on prior to the Ukraine crisis. So the lack of resources and capacity within the FCDO sanctions team, the lack of coordination with allies were just... And, it was interesting for us to see a lot of other people waking up to those issues as a result of the Ukraine crisis. So what did the Foreign Secretary do in response? Well, she tripled the size of the sanctions team at the FCDO, and she turned it from a unit into a department. They introduced the urgent procedure, which improves coordination with allies, and brought in other legislative changes. And that did 
change things. Uh, and now the UK has sanctioned more individuals and entities in response to the Russia, Russia invasion than any other jurisdiction. Now there's the whole separate question of enforcement. So what is the UK doing to make sure that banks and companies and other UK businesses are complying with these sanctions? Uh, that's, I think, a whole different question. But in, in terms of the question of who has the UK sanctioned and how how far reaching have those sanctions been, latterly the UK has done well in response to the Russia crisis. Thanks, Charlie. That's, that's a really helpful picture um, to give us. I guess going back to the beginning of this podcast, we looked at kind of the role of sanctions and why we want to use them. And I guess one thing we should look at is how effective do we think these have been so far in terms of deterring or changing behaviour? Clearly, the war started, it didn't deter it. And there's no obvious sign at the moment that it's changed the policy calculus within the Kremlin. But I guess a lot of what that comes down to is how effectively we're making these oligarchs and others who've been sanctioned feel the pinch from them. Do you have a sense of once an oligarch or whoever it is has been sanctioned, their assets are really being frozen or they might be slipping away? It's hard to say at the moment. I think that's the type of information that will come out over time. One piece of data that we think is really important is understanding what is the total amount of frozen Russian assets in the UK currently. And under UK law, the individuals who, sorry, the entities that hold assets that are frozen under sanctions are obliged to disclose that information to OFSI, the sanctions unit at the Treasury. But we haven't seen that information yet. The sense we get is it's likely to be in the the tens, probably the hundreds of billions of pounds. Um, the, the best estimate we've seen is 30 million pounds worth of Russian central bank reserves. And then the amount of oligarch assets and other assets is is unclear. So I think that will be a really important piece of information in, in determining how effective these sanctions have been. But otherwise, I think it's it's the type of information that we're only going to know a few years down the line, looking back on it and at how effective it was. Thanks, Charlie. So maybe it makes sense they're talking about obviously to bring Becca back in, looking at the changes to, in the kind of UK context that have happened since since February 24th, because there's been quite a lot. Can you give us a sense of their significance and what might still be missing? Absolutely. I mean, I think I kind of want to go back to kind of one of the points already been touched on, which is this is the really the first test of the UK sanctions regime post Brexit. And therefore, since the UK has implemented its own regime and with its own controls and, and kind of political decisions to be made around it. And I think what we learned and what we saw very quickly and very early on was the um, the lack of clarity that was potentially coming out at times around the, the individuals that the UK was sanctioning. And I think there's often a, a sort of part in the sanctions kind of deployment that's often forgotten. You know, governments set sanctions, but the people that implement sanctions are very often in the private sector. You know, sanctions are effective because of the way in which banks and other businesses implement them or, or seize assets or prevent the flow of funds and prevent the flow of assets. And actually, those things are incredibly hard to do if you don't have the certainty and clarity early on that needs to come with sanctions designations and announcements. And I think in addition, you know, in addition to the pace at which we saw the UK operating, one of the challenges we definitely saw was compared to the US, the lack of clarity coming out of the UK regime in the early days, even to the point of the UK not using the existing powers it had to issue licenses having announced a, a sanctioned entity and that was in stark contrast to the approach in the US and it almost felt like the UK approach was less planned than in the US and I think one of the things we've seen come out here is the importance of, of the foreign office knowing how it wants to utilize this foreign policy tool and having a clear sense of the way in which it wishes to kind of set out that journey quite swiftly because what the US did 
basically mirrored exactly what the officials were saying to the market in late January, early February about the kind of actions and the kind of sanctioned actions they would be likely to take in the event of an invasion. And I think it was really interesting that you got that clarity in the US market, but you didn't necessarily get it here in the UK. So I think for lessons learned and kind of how we need to see some of the reforms and changes being taken forward, it's not just the, the legal reforms that we've seen and the changes that were brought through in the Economic Crime Act, but actually some of the, the cultural and the kind of the operational and sort of around how the UK wishes to be a setter in the space and how it wishes to use and implement the sanctions in the space. Because we definitely saw that because of the way things were implemented, certain assets were left in country when they didn't necessarily need to be, but also it was much harder to freeze with legal certainty. And I think for a sort of how we do this better in the future, those are definitely things that need to be sort of addressed and looked at. Don't necessarily require reform, but do need to require um, the UK to operate in a slightly different manner to how it did this time. And that's really interesting that kind of both of you have sort of pointed to a slight lack of preparedness on the UK's front that it then kind of caught up with perhaps quite quickly. But initially, there was a lack of preparedness. So going on from that, I wonder in terms of like lessons learned for future, how do we think the UK might uh, keep parts of this approach going forwards? Looking at sanctions in particular, Charlie, are you kind of optimistic this kind of uh, new interest from Liz Truss and the Foreign Office might mark the beginning of being more willing and prepared to use individual sanctions more regularly? Or do you think it will go back on the shelf off this crisis subsides until the next one emerges? They definitely fixed some of the systemic problems that we think were preventing them from acting quickly in the past, some of the things that we've talked about. And I think now it's just really going to come down to political will. One fear is potentially that if we move into a more polarised world where you have the UK, US, Europe on one hand, and then Russia, China on the other, there might be a case of more our attitude to more countries being more, you're either with us or you're against us, and we're willing to take action against those who are against, who are against us, but really being unwilling to hold our allies to account on, in some level, smaller issues that aren't part of this one broad strategic narrative. But we think it's really important that approach can't take over um, because our hope is that sanctions offer a real opportunity, as we saw, for example, in the Bangladesh example, to take really precision action against key perpetrators within the government that doesn't necessarily rule out our existing diplomatic and trading relationship with that regime. So we think there's an opportunity there. It's, it's really going to come down to the political calculation. But the, the Foreign Office has everything it needs to act. I mean, we have helped NGOs across the world file 15 really strong evidence files with the Foreign Office for different sanctions cases in places like DRC, Iran, Sri Lanka, Cameroon. It has it has what it needs in terms of the evidence and the legal tools. The, the government just needs to take the step to act now. That's really interesting. Thank you. And I'm just thinking through in terms of giving our audience things to watch out for in terms of we are seeing kind of more of a systemic shift. I guess one might be, is the government willing to use the Magnitsky regime specifically uh, more broadly going in future? But then also, could China act as a test case, perhaps, whether the UK government's willing to kind of use the political capital uh, to go after, for instance, uh, the news this week uh, on Uyghur detention camps? Or will it be more likely to keep its powder dry for a major crisis should one occur in the future? I think the question of whether the UK will take further steps on China in relation to Xinjiang is, is a really interesting one. And I think one that we will see, um, we know that the UK got some some blowback from the sanctions it imposed previously in response to the Uyghur genocide. Um, but that 
the UK has to be prepared for that type of response and that, that is going to happen and be willing to, to ride that to some extent. I mean, another example is, so we impose sanctions on Teradora and Obiang, the vice president of Equatorial Guinea for his role in, in corruption there. And there was a lot of bluster from the Equatorial Guinean government in response initially. They said, oh, we're going to close down the consulate in, in London. But almost a year on, I, I called up the consulate for, uh, a couple of weeks ago and you know, they're, they're still operating as far as we know. So the UK needs to, to factor in that it, there is going to be some pushback to actions like this, but that has to be expected when you're taking strong action to stand up for your, your values in the world. Thanks, Charlie. That'll be really interesting to watch going forwards. And Becca, also looking ahead, you mentioned the first economic crime bill that went through in March and some of the changes it did bring. Um, and just uh, if, if, if you could perhaps look at what changes might be expected in future, perhaps in this economic crime bill or even further ahead, perhaps say, should a, a Labour government come in further down the line? Absolutely. I mean, I think so. we have an economic crime bill in this green speech. And this is really the economic crime bill we'd always been expecting. So over the last kind of two to three years, there's been a you know a long-running dialogue and engagement with government that there would need to be a further economic crime bill that could start addressing some of the kind of gaps in the current UK system and reform and regime that's been required. And that was very much thinking about information sharing. And I, I sort of touched on this earlier, the importance of law enforcement and government and private sector being able to actually access and share information they are seeing to identify potential risks, threats, um, suspicious activity, and then um, act on that and, and build kind of effective intelligence packages to be able to act on that. And this legislation is um, was has always been debated that there needed to be reforms to the current regime. And it was we expected the government would bring forward legislation in the short term to do that. And that's sort of a core part of this economic crime bill and often the part of the economic crime bill that we don't really talk about yet because the government has focused its announcement on the kind of the headline piece around companies house reform and the fact that this bill will bring forward the UK's um, verifiable beneficial ownership register requirements, which is it's been gradually working towards um, implementation of these FATF standards for a number of years now. And then the other part of this bill is really to start looking at some of the interplay between um, new technology and illicit finance. And so um, bringing crypto assets within the UK's um, recovery and seizure regime, because obviously one of the things we've all discussed um, throughout the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis is whether crypto assets are being used to enable uh, sanctions evasion and evasion of other measures and limitations. So again, this is the UK implementation of a new domestic regime to start addressing some of those challenges. And I think it's a really kind of critical piece of legislation that starts to kind of implement quite technical, not particularly headline grabbing measures that can help be very effective and really start to put in place the toolkit for the government's future economic crime plan that will come forward by the end of this year. But those um, legislative reforms have to come with kind of cultural reforms and cultural changes as well. And that is kind of the, the way in which this is being addressed by government working with the private sector, but arguably all parts of the private sector. And I think very often it, it's becoming really hard in a kind of modern digital economy to identify where the potential risks are. There are the obvious risks within the kind of the, the financial services and professional services industry, whether it's kind of in advisory work or funds work or kind of, you know, the provision of cross-border payments and transfers. But then how does that get expanded out to the digital and fintech community, but also beyond into other sectors and, and you know, the utilization of certain parts of sort of technology and 
um, other online platforms and where those technologies are being abused by criminals. And um, we see that in the, you know, the provisions of the online safety bill kind of starting to look at some of these concerns here. So I think there's a lot of legislative change that is coming and sort of setting the sense of direction. Um, but we don't necessarily sort of have a clear plan as to how you're going to see all the different parts of government coming together. Because I think one of the challenges we still see here is, and this I think applies to sanctions as well, these decisions require political backing. And as long as the politics is going to be balancing off tackling economic crime with the broader economic impact such measures might have, or the impact on the UK's competitiveness such measures might have, I think you're always going to see a challenge. In the same way that we saw parliamentary debate challenging the provision of such wide sanctions and the potential economic impact that would have on the UK, I think the more we see this agenda going through Parliament in the coming months, in a time of very kind of challenging economic circumstance, we're going to see more of those conversations coming to the part here. Because for all the new measures we put in the system to put protections in place, that will add friction. That does add friction into the economic flow of money. And it might be right that that friction is added, but that does come at an economic cost. And I do think we'll see more interest and more focus from some politicians around those debates. In terms of what it means if we see a change in government, I actually think this has been one of those issues where actually there has been broad cross-party support in the direction of travel. I think you know, we may have seen pressure from the Labour Party at times for the direction of travel to be swifter um, and to be more sort of targeted. But actually, I feel like this is an agenda that will continue even through a change of government because actually the tenants of it, you know, build on reforms from the last Labour government, build on reforms from the, the Cameron Conservative coalition government right through to kind of where we are now. Um, so actually, it feels like that will continue to evolve and develop even after a general election. Thanks, Becca. That's really, really helpful to give us a bit of a look ahead there. Hopefully, we don't have to wait quite as long for the second economic crime bill. The reaction of the UK's own anti-corruption champion, John Penrose, at the time of the first was at bleeding last, which says quite a lot. So if we turn finally uh, back to the kind of narrow Russia context, Charlie, uh, to look at what might happen to the sanctions that are already in place, Obviously, there are really big questions and uncertainty around uh, the issue of potentially unwinding sanctions uh, and what the sequencing might be around that. But why don't we focus on what might happen to the assets that have already been frozen? Do you think there are any prospects for these being seized and then used to help rebuild Ukraine, for instance? Under international law, Ukraine does have a legal right to compensation from Russia and the victims of Russian war crimes in Ukraine have a right to reparations. And the Russian assets, which have been frozen under sanctions, do seem the most obvious source for some of that money. I think an important point is that there probably needs to be some flexibility to unfreeze assets if we ever get to a point of some sort of peace negotiations with Russia. I think that remains an important point of leverage for Ukraine and its allies against Russia. But in in the absence of any sort of peace deal like that, it will be interesting to see what happens with these frozen assets. In The ca- Canadian government is moving ahead very quickly with legislation, giving it the power to seize frozen assets and give, back, give them back to Ukraine. Uh, the US government is also making progress on that, and the EU has been looking into options as well. And it's been interesting that the, the UK of, of those four powers has been the most silent on this issue in the last few weeks. But there are significant legal hurdles to doing this, and and those depend to some extent on the types of assets that you're talking about. So if you're thinking about Russian central bank reserves, there's a question of sovereign immunity, and it would take really a new exception to sovereign immunity to 
to seize these under international law. So whether that's yeah, new exception to customary international law, or on the base some sort of basis on countermeasures or self-defense. Um, I won't go too much into the kind of legal technicalities. Or if you're looking at the private property of individuals like oligarchs, there are issues like Article One, Protocol One rights under the European Convention on Human Rights and the UK public law and due process. These are not insignificant legal hurdles, but my view is that they're probably surmountable if there was the will to do this in the UK. I think in conclusion, outside of a peace deal situation, it's hard to imagine really a situation where the UK unfreezes all of these frozen Russian assets and just gives them back to individuals. So my sense is that this may happen in some shape or form, but it's it's hard to say with more certainty than that. Maybe that's my view as an optimistic human rights lawyer, interested maybe in, in, in your views, Felix, with a, probably a more realistic hat on. Uh, thanks, Charlie. No, I'd hope, I'd hope to be an optimist here as well. Um, I think you're absolutely right to draw the distinction between um, between central bank foreign currency reserves and individual uh, assets being frozen. I think the central bank foreign currency reserve question is a really interesting one. As you say, this would be a momentous historic action for the US and its allies, including the UK, to take that would need to be fought through very carefully uh, in terms of what implications it might have for future for other holders of US dollar reserves, particularly China. Um, in some senses, this would offer a deterrent uh, to China going down kind of Russia's route, uh, but it might also uh, incentivize it to kind of start adapting preemptively ahead of time. But on the question particularly of individual individual assets, I think you're absolutely right to kind of look at that trade-off between wanting to use money to help rebuild Ukraine, but then also at the same time, how that might undermine one of the kind of key purposes of sanctions we raised at the beginning, for signing it providing an incentive to change behavior. If you spend the money, it provides very little incentive for change. And one of the things I thought interesting this week that we saw come out in the press was a potential way of squaring the circle through reports of G7 finance ministers discussing a new plan for some oligarchs to be able to buy their freedom from sanctions, essentially by providing money to rebuild Ukraine, but also to distance themselves from Putin. And that might be quite a neat way of squaring this trade-off. I guess one thing our audience should look out for on this front in terms of where things are going is the upcoming G7 Leaders Summit on 26th to 28th of June. So that's one thing to watch going forward for where this might all be going. Um, Becca, just before we finish, um, I didn't ask you that, that question at the end there, so I thought I'd pop one in instead. And this is on a kind of a commercial angle. This is obviously all very difficult for a wide range of investors and corporates to react to. There's a lot of challenges, a lot of uncertainty. We've seen a lot of self-sanctioning where both kind of remove themselves from a potentially dangerous reputational legal sphere. Um, how do you see all this kind of go evolving going forward? What would your advice be for the people to watch? So I think we spoke, as you say, at the start of this um, crisis about self-sanctioning. And because of, in a many ways, the slow pace of some governments to implement quickly, businesses were preemptively taking actions because they could see the, the reputational risk um, or they could see the challenge they were receiving, not just from their customers, but their own employees and workforces to, to be doing more. And I think one of the conversations that is happening across a, a lot of boardrooms and, and across a lot of investors right now is what do we learn from what was expected of big business and what was expected of corporates um, who had exposure to Russia and had investments in the region? And, you know, what was the reputational risk of, of not acting or continuing to act or, or not taking sufficient action? And I think it probably starts to give us a sense of what 
what might be the expectation on business in the future? And certainly from a, an investor perspective, from a board perspective, kind of looking at your portfolio of assets and investments and, and exposure to um, particular regions and areas where there is potential conflict or kind of risk of kind of broader um, public concern and public outrage and determining, you know, could you manage being required to return from that region or could you manage being forced to respond to a swift sanctions regime or, or an expectation of self-sanctioning and if so what would your plan of action be because I do think there are a lot of corporates out there that probably felt they had given this a lot of thought in respect of China and potential future risk around expectations on overexposure to China given current political risk but maybe that they hadn't been looking at Russia as closely as they should have been given the events that happened and I think for now a lot of work we're doing um, talking to businesses to understand how boards are looking at this risk just as in the same way governments are carrying out zero-based reviews of their own exposure to supply chains and to sort of um, you know risk of kind of disruption businesses and corporates should also be looking at their own exposure because there is barely a sector that is not impacted in some form both in the kind of the productivity impacts of, of supply chain challenges, but also the broader reputational challenges. So I do think um, that has to be a key part of, of what companies are looking at right now and thinking about in terms of managing future risk and, and future changes. Thanks, Becca. That's that's super interesting. Um, so just on that note, thanks both for a fascinating discussion that raised a lot of really interesting themes. I think one kind of common thread that stood out to me that you both raised was the problem of political will in tackling these very complex problems. Um, it's very difficult to have a meaningful impact at home and abroad if you don't have the will, rules and resources in place. So thanks both for joining and especially to our audience for listening in today. If you'd like to hear any more about our work on the Ukraine crisis, including our regular monitoring, please don't hesitate to be in touch. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.